I wanted to announce one more time in case some of you showed up after Greg made the announcement about the upcoming members meeting, which is next week. I want to invite all of you who are members of this church to be here. There's a flyer at the little table on your way out, so grab that. As Greg said, we've made an effort to make our members meeting more family friendly. It's going to be after service. There's going to be some things for kids to do. We're going to provide food. We understand that still some of you may not be able to make it. Um, We do require those who are members to at least have every family represented here for those members meetings. So that's going to be next Sunday. Uh, What I would ask you to do is to please let us know as we're preparing with food whether or not you are going to be there. So on that flyer, it tells you how you can let us know online, but you can also just let Natalie Boudreau know before you leave this morning if that would be easier. So again, members, we'd love to see you here next week for our members meeting immediately following service. If you're going to be there, please let Natalie Boudreau know either by text, phone, in person today or online. Last thing to say about that is in the months following, we're going to continue to, to do a lunch after service once a month. That's the plan. And that is going to be for the whole church, not just those of you who are church members, but if you're uh, just attending or even visiting uh, friends that you have, members, anyone would be welcome to be a part of that. But that's not next Sunday. That'll be in the month's following, and we'll give you more information about that as it gets closer. Experts in the Greek language, which is the language that the book of Philippians was written in, they tell us that these verses that we're reading today, as well as the verses that we studied last week, they are poetic, and they are in the form of a hymn verses 5 through 11. And so historically, this text has been called the hymn of Christ or the song of Christ. The subject of this song is a summary of the glory of Christ. We could say that we have here a summary in this song of the glory of Christ. In verses 5 through 8, which we looked at last week, we have the humiliation of Christ, His journey to earth. And in verses 9 through 11, which we'll be focusing on today, we have the exaltation of Christ, or His journey back to heaven. Through that journey... The journey of the Son of God from heaven to earth, His humiliation, and then His exaltation back to heaven. Through that journey, the glory of Jesus Christ shines most brightly. So, why is the name of Jesus the name that is above all names? This is why. Why is Jesus Worthy to receive all glory and honor and power. This is why. Jesus is in a class by himself. All other gods, if they're 
were other gods, gods that are conceived by and in the minds of men. They are under Christ's foot. And they are, in comparison to Him, they are small and puny and ugly and impotent. All other gods are compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. So imagine Christ standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon in all of His glory. He steps over the edge to follow a trail that takes him lower and lower all the way to the bottom of the Colorado River. That's what we looked at last week. That's what we have in verses 6 through 8. It is a poetic summary of his humiliation. And now imagine with me Christ making his way up a trail on the other side of the canyon that takes him higher and higher until he is all the way beyond the top in all his glory, looking back over his humbling journey. And that's what we're looking at today in verses 9 through 11, the trail back up the other side of the Grand Canyon where he will be in all his glory beyond the top, looking back over his humbling journey. This is the exaltation of Christ in verses 9 through 11. And let's look at it by asking three questions that are each answered in the text. Question number one, what has Jesus done? Number two, what has God the Father done in response to what Jesus has done? And then question three, what will we do in response to what Jesus Jesus and God the Father has done. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the word that you've given us here in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Help us to understand the exaltation of your son today. Open our minds to understand your word. Open our hearts to love you more. And open up our wills that we would bow before you and your will and your desire for our lives. God, for those of us who have not confessed that you our God, and your Son is Lord of the universe. Give those eyes to see and ears to hear your glory today so that they would confess this to you and before us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you will find that on page 636. On Sunday, October 19th, 1856, Charles Spurgeon was preaching to a crowd of roughly 12,000 people at the Surrey Music Hall in London, England. Another 10,000 people were gathered outside who wanted to hear him but couldn't get a seat. Spurgeon's popularity had forced his congregation out of the new Park Street Chapel to rent this much larger music hall. And this was his first Sunday in that venue, and he was 22 years old. At just past 6 p.m., some wicked men sought to disrupt the service by repeatedly yelling, Fire! The place is falling. 12,000 men, women, and children frantically tried to escape, while 10,000 more outside unintentionally blocked their exit. When it was all over, Spurgeon was home, nearly unconscious. 28 people were seriously injured, and seven people were dead. The great preacher did not get out of bed for days. He nearly quit the ministry, and partly because of this event, he suffered from severe depression for the rest of his life. Well, just two weeks later, on November 2nd, 1856, Charles Spurgeon returned to the pulpit, and his chosen text was Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, our text today. And here's what he said about it in his introduction of that sermon, which you can go and read. The text I have selected is one that has comforted me and in a great measure enabled me to come here today. The single reflection upon it had such a power of comfort on my depressed spirit. It's true. There is a lot of comfort in the last three verses of this song. Let's find the comfort again by textually answering these three questions. Number one, what has Jesus done? Number two, what has God the Father done in response to what Jesus has done? And number three, what will we do in response to what Jesus and God the Father have done? So question number one, as we look at Philippians 2, 9 through 11, what has Jesus done? 
That is the subject of the three verses of the song, verses 6 through 8, which we looked at last week. So let's read them again. This is what Jesus has done, beginning in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he went lower, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Lower. Being born in the likeness of men. Lower. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Lower. Even death on a cross. The bottom. Those verses describe the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ. What has Jesus done? He has voluntarily humbled himself. No one made Jesus do this. No one forced Jesus to do this. Not man. Not God. He voluntarily humbled himself. He has voluntarily humiliated himself. He stooped himself as low as he could go. The Son of God considered others, like you and like me, more significant than himself. And he looked out for the interest of others, like you and me, above and beyond his own interests. He abandoned his rights as God. He gave up his heavenly privileges. That's what Jesus has done. Now to our verses today and our second question, number two. So what has God the Father done in response to what Jesus has done? That's the subject of our verses today. What has God the Father done in response to what Jesus has done? Look at verse 9 with me. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Now, we should know this by now, but this word therefore... It tells us that what the Father did in verse 9 was in response to what Jesus did in verses 6 through 8. That's what the therefore means. So, Jesus voluntarily humbled himself, verses 6 through 8, and therefore, Jesus voluntarily humbled himself, therefore, or for this very reason... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Jesus did something, voluntarily humbled himself, and for that very reason, God the Father exalted him. This doesn't mean that the Son of God wasn't exalted before He came to earth. 
that doesn't mean that the Son of God wasn't exalted when He was, as we were told, in the form of God, God in heaven before He came to earth. But it does mean that this is an exaltation that is based on what He did. It's an exaltation that Christ would not have if He hadn't done this. It is significant. It is a therefore. It is for this very reason. This exaltation is based on what Jesus did. It doesn't mean that the Father wasn't pleased with the Son before, but now He is especially pleased, if that helps. It doesn't mean the Father did not delight in the Son before, but this is, Ligon Duncan says, a particular delight. This is different. And it is based on this earthly expression of Christ's humility. In verses 6 through 8. The Greek word that is used here for exalted is translated for us highly exalted. And if you look at the transliteration of this Greek word into English, the, the prefix is hyper. So this is an exaltation that is a, a hyper exaltation. It is a, an exaltation that is beyond his former exaltation. He is higher even. The Son of God is higher in this exaltation than he was before. His position Remember the Grand Canyon, his posi- and he was in glory in heaven before he descended, died on the cross, and now he's ascending in verses 9 through 11, and he's in glory again. His position of glory in heaven now is higher and greater than his position of glory in heaven before. He is, based on what he did, God the Father's response is to highly exalt Him. This is God the Father saying, Well done, Son. This is God the Father saying, I am so proud of you. This is God putting Jesus in the spotlight. This is God drawing all the attention of the universe to Jesus because of what He did on earth. That's how significant it is that God is making Him the focal point of the entire universe by highly exalting Him. He has done something on earth that is worthy of the highest praise. This manifestation of His humility on earth is worthy of the highest praise. Think about this. His humility was displayed on earth, and when it was, it evoked a response, even in God. And think about this. What gets this High exaltation, this approval and affirmation and raising up of God the Father to the Son is not 
primarily that Jesus died on the cross to save you and to save me from our sin. It's that God humbled Himself. That's what leads to this great exaltation. God came and died. What humility. Which is the whole subject of chapter 2. What humility in Christ. So technically, in verse 9 here, there are two responses from God. You see that? They're joined by that word and. There's two responses. The first is highly exalted. And the second is bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Let's look more closely at them one at a time. We're answering the question, how did God the Father respond to what Jesus has done? First, He highly exalted Him. Well, reading the Bible, we discover exactly what that actually means, what God the Father did. After He died on the cross, how was Jesus exalted? Think about it. Well, first, He was resurrected. He was raised from the dead. Peter said in his great sermon in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Second, we have the ascension of Christ into heaven. This is the trail going back up the other side of the Grand Canyon. He's at the bottom of the river, dead, in a tomb after dying on the cross. Now he's raised back to life. And then we read about the ascension of Christ into heaven. Paul said in Ephesians 4.10. Ephesians 4.10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens. And third, in heaven, we have the enthronement of Christ. Or the coronation of Christ. Some of you will relate to this. Some of you won't. It's a total side note. But this word coronation has been ruined for me because every time I would think of this word coronation this week, I was thinking of the movie Frozen. (laughs) It's coronation day. It's coronation day. It's the weirdest thing just over and over again. Elsa and Anna animated, popping into my head next to Jesus, it was so weird. But Peter went on to say in Acts chapter 2, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So this is beyond resurrection. This is beyond ascension. This is now the enthronement of Christ, the coronation of Christ. Jesus himself said, in Matthew 28:18 after he was raised from the dead all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me what was he saying i am king of the universe he had been enthroned so this is what it looks like this is what it means this is what god the father actually did in response to 
the voluntary humility of Christ. He raised him from the dead. He ascended him back to heaven. Not just back to heaven, but seated him at his right hand, putting the entire universe under his foot. And named him king. So he was highly exalted by God. And what else did God the Father do in response? He bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What's the name? He bestowed on him. He gave him. He earned this. The name that is above every name. Well, when you hear someone's name, we take names more lightly than the readers of this originally would have. We, we think about things when we name our children that they didn't necessarily think about. Tried to capture something with the name. But even we know that when you hear someone's name, you don't just think about the, the letters of their name. You don't just think about the sound of their name. You don't just think about what you call them and what they answer to. This is more than just a label. When you hear someone's name, it brings to mind who they are, doesn't it? It brings to mind what they've done, for better or worse. When you hear someone's name, it brings to mind who they are and what they've done. One of my commentaries said, A person's attributes, nature, and very self, understood as summarily comprehended in the person's name. So what name did God the Father bestow on God the Son After he died on the cross. Some say Lord. Some say Lord. He is now the Lord Jesus Christ. And that might be it. In the very next verse, that is the name mentioned. I'm not sure. I think it could be something else. And I think the answer lies in the fact that This verse is quoting Isaiah chapter 45. If you have your Bibles, why don't you flip back to Isaiah chapter 45. And let's read just a couple verses together. You'll hear Philippians 2, 9... Way back here in Isaiah chapter 45, the last part of verse 21 through verse 23 is what I'm going to read. Let's see if this helps us understand the name that is above all names that is given to Jesus after he is resurrected, ascended, and enthroned. Isaiah 45 verse 21, was it not I, the Lord... And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. 
To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So in Isaiah 45, I think this is clear, God the Father is referring to himself. He is referring to himself. He, God the Father, God, he is the one to whom, verse 23, every knee will bow and tongue confess. And so which is it? Is it God the Father to whom all knees will bow and every tongue will confess? Isaiah 45. Or is it Jesus? Philippians 2. Before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I think the name that God the Father is giving Jesus that is above all other names is a name that brings to mind realities like this. Jesus is God. That was, of course, in question during his whole ministry by most of the population. This is affirmation now from God the Father and will be affirmation one day. This is God. Wait, I thought God the Father was the one before whom every knee should bow. I thought God was the one before whom every knee should bow. And now this man, Jesus, is the one before whom... Yes, because Jesus is God. What else does God call Himself in verse 21 of Isaiah 45? He calls Himself a Savior. And see, technically we say, wait, I thought the Son was the Savior. Not God the Father. I thought that was the member of the Trinity that was the Savior. So we've got a misunderstanding here. Are the knees going to bow to God the Father or Jesus Christ? Are the tongues going to confess before God the Father or before Jesus Christ? Is Jesus the Savior or is God the Savior? Are Isaiah 45 and Philippians 2 saying two different things? No. Isaiah 45 is being quoted so that there is no uncertainty that this man, Jesus Christ, is God and He is your Savior. You read that, if you heard that, you'd look back in your Old Testament. I've heard this before. You'd read Isaiah chapter 45. This is my Savior. This is is God, Jesus of Nazareth. The name above every other name. Ephesians 1, 20-22 says that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the earth. So what has God the Father done in response to what Jesus has done? 
He has highly exalted him. And he has bestowed or given him the name that is above every name. Now, before we move on to our third and final question, I want you to keep something in mind. This happened. This is history. Philippians chapter 2, 9. This is history. This is an historical account. Christ scaled down and scaled back up for the glory of God and the good of His people. Christ came to earth and voluntarily humbled Himself and because of it, God the Father highly exalted Him. That was and is Christ right now as I'm speaking is enthroned. So think about this that way. This happened. This is actual history. These last two verses involve us. We're not involved before this. But here we are, human beings... And this turns, these verses now turn from the past to the future. God, when it comes to you and me, had a purpose in highly exalting Christ. So listen again to verse 9 and now verses 10 and 11. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that, see, so that. God has a purpose. That means a purpose is coming up. So that. It's concerning you and me. And why he exalted Christ. He highly exalted Christ. So that. Read with me. At the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth. And under the earth. And every tongue confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. We're ready to answer our third question. What will we do in response to what Jesus and God the Father have done? First, we will bow down before Jesus Christ. And second, we will say something. We will confess with our mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Who is Paul talking about here? Who? Who will bow down before Jesus? Who will confess Jesus as Lord? We could say he must be talking about Christians. 
must be talking about believers. Believers bow down and worship Jesus. Christians bow down and worship Jesus. Believers believe and say with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. But people who are not Christians, you know this, people who are not believers, they do not do or say that. And that's true for now. God makes it very clear in Isaiah chapter 45 and Philippians 2 who he is talking about. Every knee. Every tongue. Every knee and every tongue where? In the church? No. Every knee and every tongue. Where does it say? On the earth and under the earth and in heaven. That's everyone. That's everyone on planet earth now. That's everyone in the ground. That's everyone who was on planet earth at one point. That is everyone from you and me all the way back to Adam and Eve. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess on the earth, under the earth, in heaven above. So I can, I can say this with total confidence. And I would say it to every person on the face of the earth if they were listening in. I can say this with total confidence. This is what you will do and say in response to the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Every single one of you. Every single one of your brothers and sisters, your parents, your grandparents and your great-grandparents. Every single one of your children. Every person who lives on your street. Everyone on your sports team. Everyone in your workplace. Every single person you have ever laid eyes or ears on. They will do this and they will say this in response to the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. And you will all do it and say it, we're told, at the name of Jesus. At the name means at the undeniable revelation of who He is. There has come a day or there will come a day where you and all will be faced with the undeniable revelation of who Jesus is. In that sense, everyone will be a believer. 
There will be no getting out of it. There will be no arguing out of it. There will be no loopholes. There will be no denying it. There will be no suppressing it. He will be before you in all His glory and you will know that He is Lord of the universe. And you will bow down and you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so will anyone else that's ever walked the face of this planet. What a thing we're being told in verse 11. When that day comes, and it will, every one of us will bow down and we will acknowledge Christ as Lord. Some of you, Christians, you have already done this. You have already, and you will again, on that great day, with joy in your heart, inexpressible joy. You can't even begin to imagine how full your joy will be when you confess for the second time that Christ is Lord. So some of you, those of you who are not Christians, you have not already done this. But you will. When Christ is undeniably revealed to you. And you also, alongside the Christians, will bow. And you will confess. But it will be a begrudging and disappointed confession. Some confess Christ happily. Others will confess Christ unhappily. But all will confess. This is not universal salvation. This is universal confession. And the Bible teaches this. Universalism is what it's theologically called. And it's not true. Position that... In the end, God saves everyone. That's not what this is saying. But this is universal confession. Alec Maltier in his commentary said, All will submit, all will confess, but not all will be saved. Don Carson says, That means that either we repent and confess Him by faith as Lord now, or we will confess Him in shame and terror on the last day. But confess Him, we will. In conclusion, look at the very conclusion of this song with me. Let's read it all together. We've just left out the very conclusion. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
The song begins with the glory of God, where Jesus is in the form of God in heaven. And the song ends with the glory of God. This is this humiliation of Christ, this exaltation of Christ. It is about the glory of God. Friends, it is all about the glory of God. It is not about me. It is not about you. Fight the sinful urge to put yourself at the center of every conversation, of every relationship, of every situation. Do you feel that pull? Fight it. You and I, we are not at the center of everything. We are tiny little stars orbiting around God. And He is the immovable center. And this is not about you. This is not about me. There's nothing man-centered anywhere. It is always everything moving toward ultimate purpose here. The glory of God. That His perfections would be on display in the universe. That's what that means. It is all about the glory of God. And now think about what we just read and how that is to the glory of God the Father. It is interesting to me that God is more glorified through universal confession than universal salvation. Some people have thought, and I've thought, and some people have said, and some people have written. What would bring God the most glory is if He saved everyone. They've said things like it doesn't glorify God to send people to hell, to let people perish. That's wrong. That can't be right. I know God. If that's true, I don't want to love him. I don't want to worship him. Maybe you've thought things like this. Maybe you've said things like this. And so people have decided that if it's all about God's glory, then I believe in universal salvation. But that is the exact opposite of what this text teaches us. What is it that is to the glory of God the Father? It is universal confession. God is more glorified in letting some perish than He is in saving everyone. God is more glorified, you could say, His perfections are more accurately portrayed by not merely displaying His mercy, but also displaying His justice. So He does. And there won't be a person in hell who doesn't know that Christ is Lord. Which means, friends, means lots of things, but it means that 
if you have not confessed Christ as your Lord, you must do this now. Not today, not after the service. There's not going to be an altar call. There hasn't been one in eight years. The time is not at the end of the service. The time is right now. To say as deeply as you can say it, which is not with your mouth, in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that this gospel is true, that you are a sinner, that there is nothing in you to trust There is nothing in you to hold on to. There is nothing in you to believe in. You have been made by God and you are accountable to God and what He has called you rightly to do, you have not done, neither have I. But He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, verses 5 through 11. He came, He lived, He suffered, He died, He was raised again in the place of sinners like you and like me so that sinners like you and like me could be reconciled to God. You need to right now, I call you to right now in your seat, confess in your heart that that is true. Young and old, whether you're four or a hundred, confess that this is the truth. It is the truth. He is Lord. Confess Christ happily, not unhappily. Confess Him now, happily, by faith, not then, unhappily, by sight. What are you waiting for? If you would like to make this confession, please come up and speak to me after the service. I will be up here waiting to talk to you. Now finally, remember what Charles Spurgeon said? After tragedy, these were the words that brought him, quote, power of comfort. Why? Well, this is comfort for the confessing. If you haven't confessed yet, there's no comfort here. There's just a call. But for those of you who have received the call and you have confessed Christ as Lord, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, there is great comfort in this. And you need comfort every day. You need comfort in sickness, and you need comfort in death, you need comfort when you lose a loved one, you need comfort in relationships that are broken, you need comfort in financial uncertainty, you need comfort when it comes to loved ones who are not saved, you need comfort in difficult situations or tragic situations, all of you. You're in need of comfort all the time. And there is comfort to be found here in verses 9 through 11. And the comfort is simply this. Christ is king. What I need and what you need in any given trouble that we're in, whether I get myself in it, someone else gets me in it, Satan gets me in it, trouble. What I need is to be taken out 
of the middle of that where that's all I'm thinking about and that's all that I'm focusing on and I'm anxious and I'm self-pitying and I'm discouraged and I'm depressed. You felt these things. I need something that will take me out and give me the kind of perspective that comforts me. The perspective and the comfort is this. Right now, Jesus Christ, who loves you and gave himself up for you, reigns at the right hand of God and everything is his footstool. He is in complete and total control. And there is not a fly that buzzes in front of you that was not decreed by Him today and tomorrow and the days to come. So the difficult situations are certainly under His control. The hard situations are certainly under His control. The sickness, the loss, the brokenness, the troubles and evils of this world are beneath His feet. It was the comfort that Spurgeon was brought. It's the comfort that you and I can be brought. And so let me close with reading these last few words of the song we sung this morning, which echo this truth. Martin Luther wrote this song 500 years ago. And he said, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. God, we know, some of us know, and we trust you have in others opened our our minds and our hearts to receive your word. God, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would fill us with your spirit this morning. That we would live the kind of life that brings you glory and honor. Live lives worthy of the gospel. God, be with us in the rest of our time together. Receive our worship as we remember now through this bread and this juice, the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.